0: So what'll happen if we don't change the worldview, then Christianity becomes an overlay that you just put on top of an existing worldview and it doesn't transform someone. So like James K. Smith says, you become what you love, not just what you think. If we make Christianity just something else that you think, then what happens is if you still love the things of the world, guess how you act? You still act like people of the world. So the real goal of this is to allow Christ to be at the center of someone's life so that all they do is directed towards that center.
1: It's watering time, everybody. It's time for Apollo's Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host, and today on our show, we're having another one of our Deep Conversations. Last week, you heard the start of my conversation with Jay Moon and Bud Simon about their new book, Intercultural Evangelism. It's a very important book because our culture is becoming more and more diverse. Frankly, if we're honest, we're scared of evangelism, regardless of the person's background that we're sharing with. And I think we're scared for two reasons. Number one, we're afraid of saying something wrong or not having the right answer when there's opposition. That's the first part of it. Or number two, it's because the picture of what evangelism is that we have in our minds You know, I think for many of us, we have images of a guy shouting on a street corner with a bullhorn, or going door to door and getting into awkward conversations with strangers. Such thoughts are rather unpleasant. In fact, the way evangelism has been presented in the West feels more like a used car salesman trying to make a deal rather than an invitation to discover who Jesus is and what he came to do. Such images of evangelism are unfortunate, especially when you go to scripture and see how they shared the gospel in the first century. In fact, if we look back at that, we're going to see that our modern understanding of it that we've inherited doesn't look that much like it did in the first century. Culture has a tremendous way of shaping how we share the gospel. In the West, the aforementioned images have become so ubiquitous that they're routinely mocked and dismissed. Not that evangelism should be mocked and dismissed, but our cultural expression of it needs to be reevaluated, and we need to understand the culture we're in and how it shapes us, as well as the culture a person that we're sharing with comes from. Both of those help tremendously. Now, we don't have to know everything. We don't have to be missionaries ourselves. But any insight helps a lot. Every culture has its own kind of operating system. It's the grid or worldview through which we see everything. Some scholars have noted that there are three primary ones. And we've talked a lot about these. The innocence-guilt culture, an honor-shame culture, a fear-power culture. And today, we're going to learn about a fourth one that is called indifference and belonging with a purpose. As our conversation continues, we see that understanding or identifying these cultural operating systems isn't simply an academic exercise for missionaries or theologians, no. It makes a real difference in how we live our day-to-day lives. Additionally, we're going to be talking about what it means to be gospel-centered, as opposed to simply getting people to pray a prayer and make a decision without a true and proper understanding of who Jesus is. All that and more today on Apollos Watered as we continue our conversation with Jay Moon and Bud Simon. Happy listening. As we're talking about churches... And you bring up the centered set versus the bounded set. Now, this is something that a lot of churches aren't familiar with. I know that Mark Baker just wrote a book about it, centered uh, centered set. We want to talk about that. But this is going to be completely outside of the realm of people that are not in any type of missiology circles so we need to we we need to talk about this and help them understand what the difference is and i think you guys did a good job of that in the book because it's, it's a, it, it sounds rather complex to people but it's really simple when you look at it talk to us about how a church is many churches have been bounded sets and why we need to be center sets but you have to describe what that is first who wants to swing away maybe I'll start off
0: here, um,
1: and, and
0: this concept is from Paul Hebert, yep. and, and uh, he's a missiologist, one of my heroes, by the way, just a really creative kind of guy. And yeah. He loved, um, he was a missionary, missionary kid, but he also loved mathematics, <laughs> so that's where some of this comes out of. Um, let me start off with our definition of intercultural evangelism, where okay. it's the process of putting Christ at the center of someone's worldview in order to initiate them into Christian discipleship through culturally relevant starting points, okay? So there's a, there's a lot of chunks in there, but the one we're talking about right now is putting Christ at the center of someone's worldview. So what'll happen if we don't change the worldview, then Christianity becomes an overlay that you just put on top of an existing worldview and it doesn't transform someone. So like James K. Smith says, you become what you love, not just mm-hmm. what you think. If we make Christianity just something else that you think, then what happens is if you still love the things of the world, guess how you act? You still act like people of the world. Mm -hmm. So the real goal of this is to allow Christ to be at the center of someone's life so that all they do is directed towards that center. And that is a process that's always a a direction that you're moving that, that you never graduate from. So instead of discipleship being a program, you graduate from the centered thinking means that every day I'm continuing to have decisions where I can either put Christ in the center or myself. Now the difference from a bounded set thinking is that people would think when somebody comes to Christ, they have to cross over a boundary line. So the boundary line has to be clearly defined. And interestingly enough, churches define that line in different ways. Some churches say you say a certain prayer and once you cross over that line you're in, and then you're inside the kingdom. For some people, it's like once you speak in tongues, then you're in. For others, it's a a baptism. Um, You know, there's lots of different markers. And the funny thing is Jesus never gave a clear boundary line like that, that everybody has to jump over. But churches like to make that clear boundary line so that once you have stepped over that line, then you're in the group. But before that, you're out. The funny thing is with that is that people often will say, well, you know, I prayed a certain prayer when I was 15. But if you look at the direction of their life right now, I would hate to give them assurance of salvation based upon what they did 15 years ago, you know. Um, So the centered set says, your salvation is not based on what you've done in the past. It's all based on the direction you're moving right now. Mm. Instead of thinking of boundary lines that you need to cross over. Think of the direction that your life is moving in. Are you taking all you know of yourself to all you know of Christ and moving in the direction of putting Christ at the center as opposed to putting yourself at the center? And, and that's the goal of uh, evangelism. So when you ask people in the bounded set, you have to ask them a question like, have you ever prayed to receive Christ? You know? But in the centered set, you would ask questions like, are you moving closer to Jesus or further away? Would you like to move closer to Jesus? See, those second set of questions sound more like a friend would ask another friend, like Mm -hmm. a spiritual mentor would ask another. Whereas when you have to ask the bounded set questions, it's more like you're trying to get a notch on your belt, you know, like say, would you like to cross over and now pray this prayer with me today? So that concept, it's really about direction of movement, that people focus on the direction they're moving. As opposed to the boundary line they cross over, and that's why Paul Hebert developed that type of thinking from the mathematics world is how do you group things into sets? Either they're in boundary lines or they're in movement directions, and that's the crux of
1: it. We we actually had an approach when we were doing when I was doing ministry in in Chicagoland because we encountered people like this all the time, and the more I looked at the New Testament, there was never pray the prayer. You don't see that. You just don't see that in the New Testament. But that's what so many Christians think. And it's the follow me. It's it's the follow me. And and I said, you know, for some people, it's like a light switch that was on and and, and it was off and then it was on. It, it was obvious. Other people, though, are like a dimmer switch where they start going over time. And, and we, say, we saw that similar idea even with baptism. And maybe you've seen this, too, where people thought they'd get baptized and they stopped coming to church. Because to them, that crossed the threshold. I'm in. That's all I needed to do. And I went, no, this shows you're in the race. This, this shows that you're, you're moving in the direction. You're saying I'm identifying with Jesus and I'm going to follow. And, and it's the movement. Like you mentioned, why, why is it so important or why is this such an issue? Why can't we have a bounded set in a centered set? I mean, why do we even need to have this language to, to help people see that? Does it help? Does it harm? Cause some people still are confused. Well, I would just say that the bounded set forces you in evangelism to ask questions
0: that make you feel very uncomfortable and make the other person feel very uncomfortable. You're going to get right up in the grill and say, do you want to pray this prayer today? Right now. Right now. Yeah, right now. (laughs) You know, then you're going to hell. And so, but the other questions about centered set get really to the crux of what you're hoping they become. So, so I think Mm. of the story of the rich young ruler. Right where yeah. Jesus asked two questions. Right, remember the first question: Have you obeyed the commandments? Because he's asking, you know, that question yeah. for life. What Good
1: teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life?
0: Yeah. So Jesus asked, "Well, have you obeyed the commandments?" And he says, "Yes, I've done those since my youth." Now, for a youth, a Jewish youth, there's a bar mitzvah or a mm-hmm. bat mitzvah where they have to cross over. So what he's saying is, in the bounded set kind of thinking, yeah, I crossed that line, so I'm therefore I'm in the set, right? But Jesus goes to the centered set type of paradigm and says, well, you need to give all you have to the poor and then come follow me. Jesus doesn't say that to anybody else. The reason is he knew that was what prevented him from making Christ the center of his life. Mm. So for every individual, you're saying, what's preventing them from making Christ the center of his life? For the rich young ruler, it was those riches. It may not be for others. Because Jesus never uses that same kind of formula, so to speak, for anybody else. So Jesus uses the centered set type of thinking. And I think we get better traction that way, where we're asking people or trying to identify what is preventing them from making Christ the Lord, Christ the center of their life, as opposed to do they have fire insurance by stepping over a certain line, and therefore they live
1: any way they want after that. Do you see the centered set taking on a whole new level in uh, churches in the West today? Uh, how do you mean? Well, I, I think is that the more of the movement of our culture where people are starting to see that a lot of the other view is not where people are living per se. So in that bounded set idea, I think what I'm seeing is people are are tired of that. They see the inconsistency. They see the hypocrisy. They see the scandals and they're saying, what's wrong? And we're saying, well, part of it is, is that we've got this idea wrong. You know, we've forced this kind of on people rather than understanding the process by which people are growing. And are they moving toward Jesus? That's the real issue because people want, they don't like that. I don't want to say inconsistency where they go, am I in or am I not? And it's like, well, yes. I mean, the fact you're asking that question tells me yes, but that doesn't mean that you're, that's an excuse to go do whatever you want. The question is, is, are you following Jesus? That's the issue. It's where is your heart state right now? Yeah. Right on. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. And Paul, I, I,
2: yeah. I would just say that's right on, you know, because I think, um, you know, one of the beautiful things about it, the centered set too is it talks about transformation, an ongoing transformation, instead of just a one-time, um, one-time transaction, and so that um, one of the problems, one of the challenges for the church today is that Christianity is kind of this: uh, hey, check the boxes, yeah, but those boxes are not touching the life issues in in the life of the people, and and so that that whole thing of like. How how do I have this ongoing transformation? Um, I, I seem to be doing all the things the church is asking, and it I'm just not seeing anything going on in my life or in the in the life in my in my reality around me. And so, having the centered set, we are constantly um, reevaluating and looking and examining. Hey, am I moving towards Christ? Man, it's just trans. It is transformative, and it really changes. Uh, like Jay said, it really changes the questions you ask. And it, and it moves away from that whole idea of, like, I have to get to some point of transaction, um, you know, or make the sale, like we were saying earlier. Yeah. I have to make the sale in order for it to be something significant. Yeah,
0: so uh, For those uh, who are indifferent.
2: Yes. Right? Yeah.
0: You know, they want to belong to some community, and they want to have a mm-hmm. purpose in that. If they're going to belong to a community, that's different than stepping over a line and then people ignore them, right? Uh, belonging to a community means that they're vested, they're in it, they're a part of that community. And that community has greater purpose than what they're living for right now. And therefore, they're yearning for that. They're not looking to, like, jump over a line and sign a statement, so to speak, and then those people leave them alone. That's not very attractive. That's not what they're yearning for.
1: But isn't yep. that, though, unfortunately, how churches have historically evaluated it? We're about numbers. We're about buildings, bodies, and budgets. Baptisms, throw all the bees out, rather than the process, because those don't measure well on a stat sheet to promote in front of everybody. I mean, when you say centered set, there's not, like, you have the, the bounded set, there's the line. And I can start including that in my my numbers, which I think is wrong. I think it's wrong. I I think that we need to reevaluate, and I think that's why people are frustrated. Uh, Churchleaders.com did an article uh, maybe a year or two ago called The Rise of the Duns. We've heard of the rise Mm -hmm. of the nuns with no religion, but the rise of the duns. And this was pre-pandemic where they said many people are not coming back. They don't see the use of church. They're not understanding it. They're tired of the same old. And how they described it was plop, pray, pay. And There's not a participatory part of it. There's not an engagement. There's not a true transformation. It's the same old stat sheet with all the measurables that they look for. And churches are evaluating as they're constantly using business practices to evaluate. But holiness doesn't work like that. Holiness and, and, and business, you know, business doesn't doesn't play that way. Right. So I think what we're trying to, what you guys are trying to say is, is we need to reevaluate how we measure this idea of effectiveness because of what we've been doing has been wrong. Am I am I wrong in that? You're totally <laughs> on it. So. Yeah,
2: you're spot on.
1: <laughs> how it works on this show, fellas. <laughs> oh, that's yeah, how we I'm do it. People, yeah, man. Uh,
0: Travis, to um, you know. Churches are always going to have those metrics, it seems like, because judicatories like those and, you know, et cetera. But what we're saying is add into those numbers uh, qualitative measures, such as if you're going to talk about, you know, how much, how many how often that you're going to write to your district superintendent, also provide qualitative measures of things like this, share stories of lives that are being transformed by the church. That's a qualitative thing. Or something like this signs of the kingdom of God that are popping up around the community of the church due to this church's presence. Put those into that report. So while you have the quantitative measures, I'm not saying get rid of those totally because that just seems almost,
1: I don't know, it's not, they're not It's not going to go down very well, right? Yeah, no. Added. Well, I mean, we do have a book called Numbers. I yeah, mean, right, right. <laughs> we have Acts, you know, 3,000 were added. So we're not kicking it to the curb. okay? We're just putting it back in its place. So
0: we're saying, you know, add in these qualitative measures. Um, what evidence do we have that God is having conversations with people? And see, so here's the thing, Travis, as you put those qualitative measures in, that requires that you invest your time differently, right? If you're going to look for signs of the kingdom in the neighborhood, guess what you're going to do? You're going to be out in the, in the community. Mm-hmm. If you're going to share stories of lives being transformed, guess what's happening? You're going to be engaged in people's lives. If you're going to share things about um, evidence of God's conversation with people, that means you're going to be conversing and listening to hear these evidence of God at work. So we're just saying those metrics need to be uh, added on to so that we can encapsulate what we're talking
1: about. We're going to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. The most important Bible translation is the one you read. At Apollos Watered, we use several different translations when we're studying, preaching, or teaching. But again and again, we keep coming back to the New Living Translation, the NLT. That's why we are excited to partner together. We are united in the belief that understanding the Bible changes everything. Because if you can't understand it, then you won't read it. We want you to know the God of the Bible, to water your faith so that you, watered your world. That's why we recommend getting an NLT. It's the Bible in the language we speak. It's not foreign or complicated, but up close and personal. To save some money, go to Tyndale.com. Use the promo code NLTBibles. It will give you 15% off. There's an NLT for everyone, from kids to adults, devotional Bibles, study Bibles, and so much more. Get one today because understanding the Bible changes everything. And the NLT is the Bible you can understand. Taking that into consideration, and you mentioned this in the book that I thought was very interesting. And I can't remember, forgive me, I can't remember who or which one of you it came from. But there's a story about building a roof. And one of the guys was engaging in conversation rather than helping on the roof who was that? And then the other guys got frustrated or was that just an example you guys came up with?
0: Yeah. So that was uh, a short-term mission trip uh, in a native American
1: reservation. That's right. South Dakota.
0: In South Dakota. Yeah. South the road, Lakota Sioux, Sakanju. Uh, yeah. So, um, I read the book.
1: Yeah. I awesome. <laughs> so you know. I read the book. I really uh, read the
0: book. Yeah. I read it too. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> So all the genius stuff is from Bud. Let's just put that out there. (laughs) That's how it was. You said, you
1: want this PhD? I need you to do me a thing. Yeah, right, right. (laughs) (laughs) I need you to do me a solid. (laughs) So
0: so here's the deal, right? If the metric of success for that short-term trip is how many roofs are done, how many uh, buildings are painted, how many screen doors are fixed, et cetera, then what people are doing is they're spending their time working really hard but neglecting people that are nearby them. But suppose you change the metrics. What if the metric of success of that short-term trip is something like this? Um, How many people want to follow you on Facebook? How many people want to have follow-up email conversation? How many people will call you friend by the end? Well, if that's the metric of success, then instead of spending all your time on top of a roof, you're going to spend time talking to people listening to people, engage them, visit their homes, talk to their families, etc., you're more likely to engage in evangelism and pre-evangelism through that listening conversation. But it starts off with resetting the metric, because with the previous metric, if success is based on how many roofs are done, if there's somebody down there talking to local people, the guys on the roof are going to call him lazy, mm-hmm. you know, they're call him like a slackard, Right. Mm -hmm. but in reality, he's probably engaged more in ministry, you know, Uh, so we're trying to Mm -hmm. combine both of these, this this holistic approach where you minister through word and deed, and what we're saying with typical short-term trips, it skews more towards the deed and neglects the word, and we're not saying you should do away with the deed, it's just that it should also be some ministry through the word that's commensurate with the deed, and, and pull those two together.
1: Which brings me to an interesting part. Actually, I don't know if you, 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 you I, it feels like you were reading my questions because <laughs> what I talk about is you said the four States in the community development process, relief, recovery, development, and sustainability. And there's two different approaches, the word indeed. And you have this little diagram in the book that kind of walk, I don't remember what page it was, but you, oh, here it is. It is page 125, where you guys did this right in here, you know, your own book, but I'm going to show the people that we can see this. So you're saying there in the different stages, part of it is more word. And then part of it is more deed. Why is it important for people to know and understand that and those, those four different stages. So you might have to talk a bit about the stages and then the growth and why it's important to understand deed and word and where they play in that.
0: Yeah. So, one relief stage is when there's like a hurricane, there's some dramatic event, and when you go to help those people, a lot of your evangelism is going to be through deeds. You have to stop the bleeding, help the people right away. At the same time, there is opportunity for word. You pray with them, you listen to them, you counsel, etc. But most of the pre- predominance is through deed. As you move through the progression to the next stage, which will be recovery and recovery is once the the immediate event is over people are getting back to the level they were before that that tornado or whatever at that stage you're going to minister increasingly more through word also through deed but the deed goes down as the word goes up and as you move to the next stage right of development that's where the they have developed the context so that it's better than it was before that that tornado that hit At that point, you're again increasing your ministry through word and decreasing through deed. The the two are always there. Mm. And the last stage, sustainability, that's when that context becomes a resource for others because they're able to sustain themselves. At that point, your evangelism is mainly through words and less through deeds. And our point is this. It's never that you only use one or the other. You always use both. It's just that you understand which stage they are in the development process so that you
1: appropriately use the right proportion of word versus deed which we're not always sure what proportion we just i mean you're not going oh i need to be 70% word right now and 30% deed i mean we yeah. don't really do that but it's kind of gauging it as we go as we're we're seeing how the relationship is developed and they're not in a crisis situation where they couldn't even hear what we're having to say totally. uh, So so that seemed to get it. Now, I I got a couple of other questions here that I I wanted to elaborate on. I have a question about here. So one of you, I'm not sure which one it was, but they mentioned a guy named Andy sharing with Tom and Tom's knock on the door. On page 111 and 112, he heard a knock on the door, gets up. Nobody's there. Who had that story?
0: Yeah, so this is a student. So in other words, uh, I've told you we've done these evangelism seminars for the last eight years with Knox Fellowship Asbury Seminary. One of the students uh, shared this story from his work. This is a person that he'd been sharing with and and connecting with at his work. And in this class, we asked them to start praying intentionally for a list of people that are in their daily orbit. In other words, God has brought them into relationship. Mm -hmm. So keep trying to cooperate with God's work by praying, listening, connecting, which I think is a really good posture in order Mm -hmm. to be an evangelist, which I think is a good image for evangelism versus the person who's talking a lot, you know, shoving it in their face. So it turns out that um, God intervenes, right? So God wakes this guy up at night. He hears a knock on the door. There's nobody there at all. And then he decides to open the Bible, and he just turns it to the spot where it, it says, Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And this guy's totally floored. You know? So really easy for that coworker to now share the gospel with him because God has already interceded in an answer to his prayer in a way that he would never anticipate. But it was a great encouragement to me because what we're saying is, in evangelism, we're really catching up on the conversation that God is having with people, however it may come. It may come at night through a dream. It may come on a bus stop talking to somebody. It may come in the middle of the night, there's a knock on the door. We don't know. But listen and get in conversation so that you can hear
1: that conversation and then move that towards Christ. I just got to say, if I was the guy that had the knock on the door, I'm not picking up the Bible. I'm checking the security. I'm like, the doors are locked. I, I, and then I'd be even more freaked out and i mean i don't know i I heard that story and i was like okay what (laughs) like what just (laughs) happened with all that but i have a question for you because you mentioned this description in the book and i had to go what is that you said and i wrote what is clapping the door you mentioned it's the brazilian tradition of knocking what are we talking about right
2: yeah that's just an easy one Uh, for uh, for our region of brazil you know um when someone would come to the house because uh a lot of the houses are very simple they would just stand outside and clap their hands um yeah and so that's just to respect people's privacy and then you just let someone know that you are you're there so um yeah just because the, a lot of the houses are, are yeah it's just a tradition and so no, it's very very common I-
1: I know that there different cultures have different traditions. My mentor was the first white man to be trained to be a Native American medicine man mm-hmm. and he got saved and so his whole ministry was to Native Americans. And I remember him telling me he goes you go to the door and you sit on the porch and you just sit there until they come and get you. You don't tell them you're there. You don't make you <laughs> just sit and wait. And I thought, wow, I got a lot to learn <laughs> about right. culture because that that yeah. is so foreign. To me. Um, no, you know, there's an insight on the book, page 150. reese I, I really wanted people to hear because it 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 freaks me out. Uh, you mentioned the medium is the message, and you 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 guys write this. We are seeing a shift in how people are learning. We know about orality cultures mm-hmm. and literate cultures, but these categories seem to be getting rocked right now because of the internet. And there, there's the mention of what you call secondary oral learners, who are people who have had the ability to read and write. And we're becoming oral learners, but after they became literate, but due to technological influences such as TV, radio, and you guys mentioned cassettes, but I mean, whatever that <laughs> digital equivalent whatever is. Whatever that is. Yeah. <laughs> and and what do we do with this? Because you're, you're saying that basically people are becoming illiterate right in front of our eyes in a way. Right? Am I am I wrong in that? Not, not totally. So okay. talk about preference, right? Okay.
0: So okay. they are not illiterate. They're literate but they prefer to learn and be transformed through oral means as opposed to print means. So I have students that say to me often, something like this, man, I love to learn. I just don't like to read. Is there any other way that I can learn? Well, guess what happens? Technology has shifted their preference, not intentionally, but towards this oral medium versus a print medium. And I see that in my family, like if you ask my kids, would they rather read a book about Winston Churchill Or watch a video about Winston Churchill. What do you think they're going to say? I mean, they're going to take the video every time. And Mm -hmm. it's not a conscious decision, right? But what's happening is um, due to technology, people are preferring to receive information and be transformed through these digital means like video, story, even like a podcast like this, right? Mm -hmm. Um, As opposed to reading a book that Travis writes about Apollo's water. They want to hear on their way to work or whatever they're going to hear you speak. So this isn't a conscious decision, but it's a shift. and I think it does us well as evangelists to understand this pedagogical shift and therefore move away from some of the print means and move into some of the the digital means for sharing our faith.
1: It's funny to me that we start with hieroglyphics on tablets. We move to alphabets, then you know we we we're doing all this reading, and then we go back to emojis, which are basically hieroglyphics <laughs> on tablets. <laughs> 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 uh-huh. it, um, it, it's just funny to me how cyclical things yeah. are culturally speaking over time, and this orality, as you mentioned, we um, how that shift is occurring. We had a Esteban shed on the show, who is uh, with a ministry um, called Streetlights, and they were doing ministry in the inner city of Chicago, and one of the things they noticed was that the young men there had a very hard time reading, Mm -hmm. and even with like an ESV Bible, it was just a little too advanced for them, and even with the NLT, they had a hard time, so they took the New Living Translation, and they put it to hip-hop music, Mm -hmm. and the kids picked it up then. Yeah, they they, that so that that that's just illustrating the change that you're talking about, because we do see a culture that is shifting and going toward more orality preference in how that they they do things. And I would I would I would agree with you because my kids are the exact same way. Um, But when I look at the different worldviews back to that for a moment, and you you even say this, like if people come to us from a different worldview and ask us to pray for them. Um, you mentioned that we should if we're interacting with people, we're sharing and they, they need something right Right. then and there that we might just dismiss. They might say a sickness in the family. They might be an issue that they're facing a crisis, some spiritual issue that we encounter. And, and I've encountered this after interacting with Congolese where they had people that were oppressing them, spirits that were trying to get them. And it was so foreign to me and foreign to the people that I brought to meet them. They came from a cultural worldview, such as mine. We have a tendency just to dismiss such things in the West. But you guys mentioned when you encounter that, pray for them, interact with them. Why is it so important to fill that void when they ask us to do something when it seems so foreign to us?
2: Yeah, I'll, I, I just think, um, you know, we are, we're saying that, that Christ, the power of Christ can fit into that worldview. And that the power of Christ is over every other power. So, a lot of times we are thinking um, we're thinking in very uh, empirical terms, and mm-hmm. so the the fear power worldview does not lend itself to empiricism or a scientific method, and those are the things that in the West we've kind of grown to trust. We think, well, we need some type of proof. But here, uh, for someone in a fear power worldview, um, if you say, The proof for them is this um i'm gonna pray for them that they'll have a safe trip and they come back they've had a safe trip that's the proof you go well, come on guys that could have that could be because because of anything you know and so um and so that that connection for a lot of times let's shift it to something a little more concrete if someone has a sickness And they say, would you pray for me in this sickness? And so you pray for them. Well, in our mind, in our empirical mind, we are thinking, if I pray for A, then B should happen. They should get healed of that sickness. But for someone in a fear power worldview, a lot of times, if they have a sense of God's presence and of God's love and of God's acceptance, you see all of this, the spirit and material world are intermingled and they're going that is an answer to the prayer I feel loved and accepted and seen in a way that I've never felt now if they they also want to get healed clearly they want to get healed and that's a manifestation of the power of God and that happens all the time all the time you know for for people but I think a lot of times we are looking for that one-to-one equation um but but there's other stuff going on that um that's outside the realm of the way that we normally think. Yep. So does that does that make sense?
1: Oh, it totally does. And it actually illustrates something that happened on this show. We we had uh, Nick Ripken on, and we had another woman named Audrey Frank. And both of them talked about how to minister to people from a Middle Eastern background. And a woman heard our show, and she, the Holy Spirit told her immediately to go talk to the neighbor who was buying a house across the street in Illinois, who is from Middle Eastern descent. And so they developed a friendship over time. And the woman started to unload her burdens on the the woman who is a frequent listener to our show. And she was uh had met a young man and she he at a refugee camp and he was stuck in Europe and couldn't get through and needed help getting the visa and so on. And so she asked this, the woman who listens to our show, uh, to help her. And she said, I had to confess, I didn't know what to do if I, and I was afraid I was going to mess it up. So she said to her, she said, I'll do it, but can we pray to Jesus first? Because I don't want to mess this up. And, And they prayed and he ended up getting citizenship, but she, she couldn't believe that God had answered her prayer with him. And also she prayed for her to get housing. Um, And God answered right away. And she became a Christian because of that interaction. So that's just totally giving support to what you're saying there is to 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 pray to even though your worldview might be different. We may not think it's, it's as we may not think that God would answer in that way so quickly, but he does in ways that we don't expect. And even then, their perception of it is to understand that that person cared enough. to bring God into this situation. And as you said, if we don't, there's a danger. And what's that danger? Yeah, well, so what we're talking about is taking off our straitjacket
2: of what
0: the gospel is, right? We come from a guilt justice worldview, often from the West, and people living in a fear power worldview, they wanna hear how the gospel is the power of God. When they have a sick baby or an unresolved uh, relationship, like you're talking about, you enter into prayer with them they recognize you're a spiritual person and you are accessing the divine power of God. All of a sudden, that's the world they want to hear more about. If you say, no, I don't have the gift of healing, then what they're going to do is go to somebody else. Maybe the psychic hotline, it may be horoscope, it may be, who knows where, you know. So what you've done is you've missed the opportunity for God to receive glory. Um, So the way I look at it now is this, I'll pray for somebody and just invite the Holy Spirit to do what the Spirit of God wants to do already. I'm not trying to twist God's arm to do what God doesn't want to do, right? I'm just inviting the presence of the Holy Spirit to do what God already wants to do. And if God wants to receive glory through this event being resolved, then that's God's prerogative. Um, That was a great revelation for me after being in Ghana for a while. At first, people asked me to play for their kids, and I was a little bit like, well, I'm not really, like, have the gift of healing. But I saw they go somewhere else. They go to a you know, medicine witch doctor. Yeah. Yeah. So then I said, wait a second. I mean, God put us here. And if somebody comes to me and asks, shouldn't I, as a spiritual person, invite the presence of the Holy Spirit? So I did. And to my shock, some people got healed, not everyone. And I don't have to worry about that. I don't know why. Right. But we invite the presence of the Holy Spirit to do what God wants to do. And that's our role. So um, I think it was Chuck Kraft that said that the Spirit of God is often like a delivery man, like a mailman, like a UPS. (laughs) Mm -hmm. In other words, you don't have to have the gift of healing, but if God wants to deliver healing and you're the person with the package, deliver it, right? Because they Mm -hmm. ask you. So therefore, uh, be attuned to the conversations that are happening. When people notice that you're spiritually interested and they ask you to pray, by all means, do that. I've prayed for people's goats. I've prayed for people's like eye patch. You know, you pray for all kinds of things that really seem kind of strange. But that's the world they're in. And need to get off that straitjacket that I've been bound in and get into
1: their world. This is more kind of a personal question. I, w- I was in India and a couple came to me with their baby who was clearly dying. Mm. And they handed me the baby and I did pray, I prayed. I prayed, but I felt so helpless at that moment in time. And everything within me is like, get her to a doctor, which they just couldn't do. There was no doctor around. There was no way to access a doctor. And I realized how small I was at that moment in time. Is that just what we're talking about, just praying and letting God do? I I don't know whatever happened to the the, the child, but, man, it just weighed on me heavy.
2: Right. I, I think you did. The, it sounds like you did the right thing. You just invite God to work. Yeah. You invite God, God's power. Um and compassion. It says uh God has compassion. And so uh He has compassion to heal, He has power to heal. Now, like you said, you just have to leave that up to up to God and in every situation, not just that situation, but in every situation, you have to leave it up to God. But like um, like Jay said, you're inviting the Holy Spirit to do what he already wants to do. And so God um God can use that redeem the situation, he can bring healing. There's, there's, it's not just, um, it's not just one specific thing that will honor God in that situation. So there can be all kinds of things going on there. But I think inviting God into that situation is we're inviting the power of God.
1: Mm.
0: Yeah, it's been said that uh, a pain shared is a pain in retreat. So when you enter into that pain of that family, you're starting to carry some of that load for them, so that some of their pain is being lessened. Right. And in the midst of that, you're offering hope through the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ to transform them. And ideally, we try to do both. Like in other words, as we're praying, then we try to find some medical intervention. So we do both instead of one or the other. We tend in the West to just do the medical intervention. Well, if the baby's sick, find out what the pill that they need. And then And uh, say like where we lived in Ghana, they tend to do the opposite, like in a village, just go to the spirit world right away and not go to a doctor until it gets really bad. I'm saying I think we should do both, you know, when, when ideally when possible, like you pray for the person and at the same time you seek medical intervention and you never know how God is going to work in all of that. But I think you did the right thing, Travis, by starting to bear some of that pain, because that makes that pain start to go into retreat.
1: I like how you describe that. And and I would agree. I think people need to hear that. And I had to tell that to a lot of the folks in my church is God supernaturally heals. He does that. But he also uses means. I mean, even when Jesus spits in the mud and takes the mud and puts it over the eyes, it shows that he uses means. He didn't need to do that. He could have just said, hey, be seen, see. And he used means. And so I think God uses means to heal just as much as he can do it directly. And we never know which one he's going to do. And we just want to make sure that, that we are directing them accordingly as uh, as we seek to minister. You know, as as we're kind of concluding this conversation here, talking about intercultural evangelism, and, and you guys have both been well on the mission field. You're very well versed in that. I know many of my listeners are going to say, you know, well, I'm not on the mission field. How does this apply to me? And I think it does. It does apply to them, even though they're in a Western context. Why does this? Why is this important for them to understand in the context that they're in?
0: I'll just share a little bit, and Bud has some statistics on this. Um, the president of Asbury Seminary, Tim Tennant, is fond of saying that North America is the fastest-growing mission field. So just There's think that out for there. a second. Not the largest by any stretch, but it's the fastest-growing due to secularization, immigration, urbanization, etc. So what that means is, wherever you, whether it's at school, at the supermarket, at your at your work you're more likely to engage someone of a different religious system, a different cultural background than in the past. Therefore, we actually wrote this book, not simply for missionaries that go far away, but also to help people think as missionaries wherever they work and wherever they play, wherever they go to school, et cetera. The more you start looking for it, the more you will find there are people different than you that God is already speaking to, And if you catch up on that conversation by listening well enough, you can help them enter into the fullness of Christ. Oftentimes what happens, Travis, is Christians get a bit freaked out. If somebody's a Muslim or a Hindu or a Buddhist or whatever, they say, well, they already got a faith. I'll stay away from them. And we're saying, no, catch up on that conversation. Hear what's happening. And the gospel is not dynamite to blow up their culture, but the gospel is really leaven in the dough to transform it. Mm. So we're trying to give people hope to find entry points. Like, where do you start the conversation? Because oftentimes people don't know where to start it. We're saying, instead of trying to like blow up somebody's Muslim uh, religious system, look for fear power. It's most likely there. For a, for a Buddhist or Hindu, look for honor-shame type of areas and therefore allow the gospel to speak to the worldview assumptions in order to transform it. And our job is not to denigrate their faith, but allow the gospel to speak to their worldview assumptions so that they'll find that Christ will transform that. That's what we're uh, hoping to accomplish.
2: Yeah, and, and I would just add into that, you know, one of the things you brought out is secularization. Um, we tend to think secularization, the end of it, is... Um, is just to deny God and all that. But that's not what happens. It's pluralism Mm. and indifference. That's the end of secularization. And um, hand in hand with that is, especially when we look at our society today, um, one out of every eight people is born in a foreign country. One out of three people have someone who is foreign born living in their household. Mm. Okay, so that's usually a parent or grandparent or someone like that. So think of that. One out of three, you're going to go to the store today. um, Whatever store you're going to go downtown, you're going to see one out of three people have an immediate relative who's been born in a foreign country. Much higher in urban areas like Chicago, New York. It's up to 50% in some some major urban areas like Miami. Um, Those numbers are huge. So these people are coming from all kinds of world views, all kinds of different perspectives. And um, this book was written primarily for an american audience because the way um the way that we think about the gospel has been very monolithic Mm -hmm. there is a gospel presentation and we just need to realize um, a lot of the things we're talking about today need to be empathetic we need to be listeners we need to see and explore how the holy spirit is at work in people's lives and we need to join in that work and in the conversation that's going on and so those types of things um the world has shifted, and so the church needs to catch up on that conversation, I think, um, and, and make the conversation relevant to what's going on in people's lives.
1: That's, that's very, very true. Every, everything you've said, I, I have, find, have found myself saying for some time. It's our, it's our contention that the culture has shifted over the last 20 years, and a lot of the missionary methods that have been developed in other cultures are, are extremely relevant now. Because people do find themselves in a in a culture that, if if they're of a certain age, they grew up in a Christendom culture where Christianity was the majority, and they understood terms like VBS and and yeah. Sunday school. And but the culture has completely shifted, and they they found themselves asking a question like, "Who moved my church? What 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 happened? Where where are we? This is a different world. It's it's not a world that I recognize any longer." And so you now have become in some ways a missionary. And you need to start thinking that way and adapting these methods because God is still God and God has allowed it. And it's not something that we need to to shout at the darkness for, but it's saying, okay, God, you've allowed it and you've allowed it either to revive your church or for us to reach them. One of the two. And so we need to be able to be a part of that because God is doing a work. And I know, and I've shared this numerous times on the show, when I was in New England, the, the churches that were... Caucasian were dying, but the churches that were immigrant were just exploding. Right. And and, and as you guys have said, and alluded to, and I, I like to use the, the quote by um, Henry Blackaby, where he said, find out where God is working and join a minute.
2: Yeah.
1: And I, I think that's the same thing. We're, we're saying find out where he's working and he's working among the nations. He's working right now he's bringing these people here. We had David Garrison on of global gateway. And we were talking about this, that there are so many unreached people groups and and, and Tim Tennant, as you mentioned, Tim's been on the show. And so is Craig God. And we're, we're all saying the same thing. Look around, look around. God has brought all these different people groups that are here to hear or revive one of the two. And I, that's why I like your book, because it's calling us to say, we need to rethink it, what we need to do We have all the tools that are necessary. Once we recognize the worldview, it's learning to listen and becoming a learner and then apply that because the hope of Christ applies across every single cultural spectrum that we can find. Yeah. I I want to encourage you. The book is, is good. Uh, I I enjoy it. I enjoyed it a lot. Um, I enjoy getting to know you guys a bit. How how can people learn more about what you're doing?
0: Yeah. Well, great question here. Um, So um, if they like the face sharing card game, they can order a copy of that at um, digitalbiblecollege.com. That's available. If they'd like to be a part of uh, the evangelism training that we do every semester, um, we have online participants as well. If they are interested in that, they can write to me, uh, jay.moon at asburyseminary.edu, and people can participate in that. One of the eight lessons is about pluralism, and that's where we talk about this very topic. Um, mm. Aging people of other cultures and how do we do it? So we demonstrate it. We have exercises and debriefing to help people gain their confidence and their competence. And my guarantee is that after these uh, eight weeks that they'll increase both of those. Uh, when we do this face-to-face at the end of the eight weeks, they, we invite them to bring someone who's not yet a believer to the class. And what we do is we have like a meal together, and all the stuff they've learned the last seven weeks, they'll apply that appropriately, like the uh, understanding the worldview, uh, understanding secularism, etc. And every time, here's what happens: um, the conversations work really well. Some people have come to faith. Many people have had follow-up visits with these people. But oftentimes, there's a Muslim. I'm seeing a few a few months ago, was a Muslim, two Hindus. We've had Wiccan. We have lots of indifferent. At the beginning of the eight weeks, they're scared to death. How would I start to engage in a conversation with Muslims? At the end of the eight weeks, they find out this is actually fun. It's We can do this. We just need to learn a few kind of perspectives on it. And that's what happens. So if, if your listeners want to be a part of that, they can email me, and I'll give them directions on how they can be a part of this um, training online, which is free, by the way. And we give them tools and, and materials to
1: be able to practice that well we'll yeah. make sure that that's available Bud. how about you
2: yeah so i'm getting a web page set up uh budsimon.com. so probably by the end of the summer that stuff will be available i think you know one of the missions uh, one of the reasons we wrote the book and one of our missions personally is how can we shift back from evangelism being this dirty word um how can how can people just realize um live in live into that um again kind of what what jay mentioned to pastors i just talked to a pastor a few days ago he says i, I just need i just need to be re-equipped or equipped actually he was what he said for evangelism he's just never been adequately equipped for evangelism and so it's hard to think about um i want to live into this when we it's never really been something of our own personal experience mm-hmm. So that's, that's really our heart and passion with writing this book. And, um, and people can reach out to us, like Jay said, so we'd be happy to engage in conversations and how to how to help with that equipment.
1: Well, we will make those links available in the show notes for people to click and find out more about and I hope that they do because I do think this is a valuable resource for people. And it removes the, the stigma and the fear uh, around it, I think it 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 will equip them to have to be able to share the gospel with with confidence and competence, as you said before. But I do want to thank you guys for the book, and I want to thank you guys for coming on Apollos Swattered. It's been a delight.
2: Hey, thank you.
1: We covered a lot of territory, things that might not at all seem like they fit together at first. I get that. But here's the thing. The more our worlds change— Whether it is the changes brought about by technology which alters the way we think and interact with information to the people who live next door. I mean, did you catch that one in three people in the U.S. alone are directly connected to someone not born there? Huh. Life has changed. Our worlds are just different than they used to be. And that means in every area, whether we like it or not. I don't know where you are at today or what you were facing, but I'm willing to bet that something we talked about connected with your world. That's a testament to the fact that our lives are rapidly changing and things that we wouldn't even think about affect our faith. Here at Apollos Watered, we talk about the gospel being for all of life. That's what discipleship is. When all of life seems upended, it can be more than a little disorienting frightening even. Boundaries are crossed, and it's hard to know where to stand. I know I've felt that way. I've seen it in the issues we are facing and in the lives of many of my friends. Deep wounds. And too often, the church is just check boxes, but hasn't touched the issues of life. Borders are a topic of discussion in lots of areas, politically, psychologically, intellectually, even in our everyday jobs. We've all heard the, that's not in my job description. Jay and Bud's argument that we need to move from bounded set thinking, who's on that side of the border, to centered set thinking, centering our lives on Jesus, speaks louder and clear to the world we're living in now, and it gives us opportunity to work with people in process. It's not that the answers of the past aren't true, No. It's that they're not addressing the questions, the lives that people are leading today, including our own. I was struck by the idea of our faith being about the direction we're headed. Are we headed toward Christ or ourselves? There's a lot to think about from this episode. I'm still chewing on many of the things. I know that we often have a tendency to overcompensate for the failings of the recent past but I really believe that the lessons that Jay and Bud have explored in their book are important for all of us. I encourage you to get a copy and check out the links they offered at the end. Let us know what you thought, what hit home to you, things that you aren't sure about or felt uncomfortable with. Send us a comment on Facebook or Instagram. We would love to hear from you. And we want to thank our Apollo Swattered team of Kevin, Melissa, Donovan, Eliana, Rebecca, and Audrey. Today's episode is brought to you in part by FCC Cabinets of Jacksonville, Florida. Water your faith. Water your world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollo's Water. Stay watered, everybody. And I'm on a roll.